This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, readers. This is The Bookshelf on ABC Radio National and on your podcast device. I'm Kate Evans. And I'm Cassie McCullough. And the first thing we want to know is, have you read Tara June Winch's The Yield, which won the Miles Franklin Literary Award for 2020 just a week ago? That book is the one we're looking at for our next book club session, which is next week. So you haven't got much time for that. And we also want you to read Miles Franklin's My Brilliant Career, and we're keen to know your thoughts about both these books ahead of the show. So send us an email or head to the ABC Book Club Facebook group. So get ready for next week. But right now, let's get stuck into three novels. Luke Horton's The Fogging. Now, that's debut Australian fiction. And also English writer Daisy Johnson's intriguing story, Sisters. And an almost familiar world full of electronic pets in Argentinian writer Samantha Sweblin's book, Little Eyes. Samantha Schweblin is an Argentinian writer who mostly lives in Berlin now, although I did read that she's back in regional Argentina at the moment, caught out by the pandemic after visiting her family. Her earlier books include Fever Dream and Mouthful of Birds, translated from the Spanish, and they won a lot of awards, Kate. But it's her new book we're going to talk about today. It's called Little Eyes, although it was called Kentucky's in Spanish, and a Kentucky is the name of the creature that shapes the book. These are little electronic creatures that are a bit like an iPad on wheels, but in the shape of an animal. They're a bit like a toy, but they're not really, because each Kentucky has two aspects, a keeper and a dweller. There's the physical creature, and that lives with somebody we might call the keeper, and it moves around your house, it watches you, it makes little noises. And then somewhere else in the world is the dweller, the person who lives inside this little creature, controls its movements and watches what's happening. So she's invented these creatures in an otherwise completely contemporary sort of realist novel. And they cost $279. And in this book, we get what, at least a half a dozen people to have one. And then there's the people on the other end who are able to dwell inside the toy virtually and kind of creepily watch what that person's life is like. And when this book started, it was a bit hard to work out what was going on. It had quite a a dark, strange feel to it because the first people we meet were these slightly unpleasant schoolgirls who had this little toy and were using it to sort of bully another girl at the school. So I thought it was going to be a very grim, strange little book, but it changed as we got 
more involved with the people rather than just these invented pieces of technology. Yeah, those first girls were really awful, sort of flashing their tits at this, you know, little... I feel like a gremlin, really. A gremlin, these creatures, they're like, to me it was like Black Mirror, you know, the great TV series of uh, Charlie Brooker's where bits of technology gets mixed up in real life and in scenarios that they were never intended to do. I think that's where I was coming from. So these girls were, you know, unaware that inside this creature, this Kentucky, was somebody they didn't know, someone from the other side of the world watching them, unable to speak, but clearly following everything they were doing very closely. But we didn't just stay with these girls in the story, which I think would have made it very hard going. Instead, we meet all these different characters all around the world engaging with these creatures. And as the book goes on, we just have to make sense of how they work. So this technology is designed so that you can't turn them off. You can't really control what this little creature in your house might do. But of course, all you need to do is put them in a locked room or put a towel on top of them or stick a bowl over them and suddenly they're not around anymore. But they have a charging base that these creatures have to go back to. If they run out of charge, the connection is severed and they're sort of dead. And so that's, I guess, one way that you can control it. But Kate, you see, even like what, that you've just had to explain all that and what you were explaining before, this was part of my problem with this book. It just felt like half the book was taken up with explaining how these creatures or toys or whatever they are worked. There was so much exposition, exposition. You know, you could turn to any page in this book and you've, before it you know, really takes off, which takes a long time. It's, it's just, uh, and maybe something's lost in translation because it, it was written in Spanish. But uh, like here, for example, I've just opened it at any page. It goes, um, the Kentucky's box was nearby, still sealed. She wondered if she could return it once it was open. Then she sat up and placed it on her lap. She pulled off the security seal and opened the packaging. You know, just sort of on and on with this description. Um, unfurling new cords from their neat coils, pulling the cellophane from two different kinds of adapters, smelling the charger's plastic. You know, it, and then the creature had three wheels of smooth rubber hidden under its body, one in front, two in back. It just sort of endlessly I felt the premise of the novel had to be explained and explained and each character had to discover the capacities of these sort of Tamagotchis for 2020, you know. I mean, I'm sounding like a, I mean, as a proud representative of Gen X, you know, I love my digital stories as much as anyone else, but this book made me feel old. Whereas it, it didn't feel like exposition to me, I guess, because she's explaining this invented technology but where the exposition isn't there is in all the ideas behind it, which I thought she drew out really quite subtly. So, like what? If Tell it's me. A, well, if it's a book about surveillance and how we interact with technology and loneliness and connections across the world, then I thought they were being drawn out in really quite interesting ways with these very human stories. Mm. So, for example, so we met Amelia an elderly woman living alone in Hong Kong, her son gave her a dweller link. So she didn't have one of the creatures. Instead, she was watching and she didn't even know where she was or what she was watching. 
there's a translation ability in this creature. So on her screen, she's somewhere and she doesn't know where she is. We don't know where she is. And eventually we discover that she's in the flat of a young woman called Eva in Erfurt in Germany. And so we keep coming back to this elderly woman who's trying to make sense of what she's seeing, what it means to be looking at somebody else, then starting to see things about this woman's relationships and sexual life. And I thought all of that was actually done quite subtly. Yeah, I did like the story about the Croatian people who realised they were watching this sex slave in Venezuela and managed to get in contact with her mum. I mean, that was, that was good. That was, that was a great storyline. Well, that was a great storyline, but I thought it was also really clever in that so that character, Grigor, has realised that this is an unregulated piece of technology and he can make money out of it by selling people the idea of safely going into a slum in India or looking at a middle-class family's life or getting an insight maybe into a merchant bank. So he's setting up all of these creatures and selling the idea of the narrative. And then it's quite a long way down the track that they suddenly realise, hang on, what are we actually seeing? What's at risk? What's happened to this young girl? So when we've got all these different narratives, I became interested sort of in spite of myself because that first, that opening, I thought, oh, no, this is just odd and alienating and these unpleasant schoolgirls. But then instead we got these eight or ten other stories. Tell me you liked Marvin in Antigua. Oh, look, I mean, there's all lots of them had, had likeable qualities. And I guess, you know, it's that age-old story of it's not the technology, it's the human, you know, a human nature that, that comes out through the use of it. So, yes, there is this human sense of it. But for me, it was just... Maybe it's something to do with the pandemic and my brain is just sort of in so many different directions at the same time. It's I need a book right now just to hold my hand and take me somewhere. Whereas this felt like there was so much going on. I was being asked to work so hard to piece it all together. It felt like I'd smashed a glass in the kitchen and I was down on my hands and knees with the dustpan and brush trying to sweep it all together to kind of get an understanding of what was going on. It wasn't the right book for me, maybe. I can see it's clever and I can see the language use is interesting, incredibly short, jerky uh, rhythm to the language, which once again might be to do with uh, translation. Maybe that was one of the challenges and overloaded with exposition, as I already said. But um, I felt like the authorial voice was kind of opaque. And, you know, I know every creative writing class on the planet always starts with show don't tell but there was just showing and I really needed just to be told a few things you know like to go a little bit deeper rather than having to do all that work myself so maybe just the wrong book at the wrong time maybe. Yeah because although she was explaining the technology it didn't feel didactic to me in terms of this huge range of ideas that she was exploring about her relationship to both technology and animals and being quite deliberately unsettling and playing around with even the politics of resistance, which is where this this boy, Marvin, in Antigua, who finds himself in the body of this little creature in Norway and gets caught up in a resistance movement. I thought that was really well done, mm-hmm. the fact that we're, we've got that idea and then as the book goes on it becomes darker 
and darker and more violent and more destructive without a sort of clear moral as to what it meant. So I liked that doubling narrative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess, you know, child of the 80s, gremlins and, you know, we've had Furbies and Tamagotchis and Digimon and everything. I, I sort of felt it was on that trajectory. I'd been there before. Interesting. That's that's how I would say it if I was asked to give a polite description at a dinner party. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we can definitely agree that it's interesting. Samantha Schweblin's Little Eyes is translated from the Spanish by Megan McDowell and it's published by One World. Time now on The Bookshelf to meet today's guests. Let's begin with a bookshelf regular academic and TV writer, Mark Sutton. Hello, Mark. Hello, it's good to be back. When we say TV writer, that doesn't mean that you write about what's on the TV. You write what goes on the TV. I have, yes, that is correct. We should have specified at the start. No, I write what goes on TV occasionally and then, like a lot of people in TV, I have long gaps between those times where I don't write anything that's on TV. <laughs> yes, the peaks and troughs. So, Mark, with all the pandemic restrictions, your work and with a new baby, what's that done to your reading? Well, believe it or not, uh, I'm not finding as much time to read as I have done in previous years. I'm one of those people who makes lists of all the books I read so I can see how I'm going. And um, I was looking at my list for this year and was embarrassed to come on this show and talk about my reading habits lately. But that's all right. Um, it's, I haven't read a lot. but And my reading tended to be during the pandemic and during having a baby. I found I've kind of gone into my corner a little bit, which for me basically means... Books that are comforting or easy to read, crime books, westerns, history, because you can pick them up and not read them for three months and then pick them up again and know what you, what's going on. And also rereading books that I have read before, which I find is kind of an easy thing to do when your mind is a little bit distracted because I guess you can let it wander and you're not going to lose your place mm -hmm. because it's kind of, it's like having a spaghetti bolognese. You just know what's, what's in there and it's <laughs> going to be tasty. That's right. But Mark, just before we move on, you are also a Dylanologist. In fact, you have a PhD in work you did researching Bob Dylan's lyrics. This True. is before he won the Nobel Prize for Literature. He's, and I was vindicated You were vindicated. <laughs> See, I was right. No, he's just released a new album and I'm, I know a lot of people love it. Are you amongst them? Yeah, I sure am. I'm, I have to say I was resigned to the fact that I thought Bob was never going to release a new album of original songs. You know, we had those five CDs worth of Frank Sinatra covers, which are not to everyone's taste, but I kind mm. of thought, oh, well, I'm content with his oeuvre. You know, he's given <laughs> enough. I'm happy. And then this album kind of came out of nowhere. No one expected it to come out. And uh, I'm going to join in the chorus of, of praise and say that I think it's probably his best album since, at the very least, since 2001, when you release an album called Love and Theft, which was also very good. Mm -hmm. But for someone who's almost 80 to release an album of, of this quality, where the lyrics are, are so precise and, and poignant and inventive, uh, I really, I, I'm proud of my boy. I think he, uh, <laughs> he's shown that he, he earned that Nobel Prize. Yeah. Reminded me of uh, Johnny Cash's final album and also maybe the one by Willie Nelson. There's something similar about these grand old men 
saying their piece. Yeah. And I might put in a mention there for Lucinda Williams' new album as well yes. as an older performer doing something that's really quite interesting. She's incredible. Also with us is journalist, poet and writer Jessie Two, whose novel A Lonely Girl is a Dangerous Thing has only recently been released. Jessie, hello. Hi, how are you? G'day, great to have you along uh, and wonderful uh, that you've got this novel out into the world. Tell us, is it a lonely girl that's dangerous? Uh, I thought your hero Jenna Lynn was also dangerous because she dares to be a little bit ambitious and to reveal her desires. It is, yeah. I mean, anyone with um, who struggles with loneliness has an excess of desires and I think when one finds them oneself in that position, they can put themselves into risky situations. I, and I think it's to a degree women suffer from this on a different level than men. And just to, to follow up on what we were talking about with Mark about music, I mean, your, your protagonist is a musician, a classical violinist, as you were. So music and writing is also something that interests you? Oh, absolutely. I think writing about music has always been a struggle of mine. I mean, music is there because words are insufficient. Um, but I I tried to do it justice through this character of Jenna. And, you know, the classical music world is also very hard to write about. Classical music generally, you know, opera and symphonies, they're so excruciatingly hard to describe using at least, you know, the English language. But um, it's such a it's such an interesting intersection, especially when it comes to big, chunky, canonic works of classical music and, you know, how that intersects with the English language. Not to mention the odd scene of um, classical musicians bonking each other by the side of the stage before they start performing, <laughs> just to use one example from your book. <laughs> yeah. Now, Jessie, we, Cassie and I were just talking about Samantha Schweblin's new novel, Little Eyes, but I believe you've read Fever Dream. What did you make yes. of that one? I think I did the mistake of reading Gia Tolentino's review of it in The New Yorker before I embarked on reading the novel. And so I had this very heightened, exaggerated sense of what it might do to me. And not just her review, but a lot of other reviews I read from American publications were extraordinary in their um, praise of the book work and how they described it as this very psychologically intense experience reading it. And I went into it thinking that I might go through some sort of psychotic episode by reading it. But I think because of that extraordinarily heightened sense of expectation, it inevitably, you know, didn't reach those heights for me. And so my experience of it was affected by that preconceived ideas. Um, but I think, I mean, I, I still loved it. Um, it just didn't hit me in, across the face in the way that I thought it would. Well, uh, you and I are together, the underwhelmed, I think, Jesse. Yeah. <laughs> um, Mark, let's hear a bit more about your reading and rereading in particular. So what is it that you've revisited lately? I, uh, I suppose one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot you know, while we've been in isolation is the possibility of not travelling for potentially many years from now, or at least leaving Australia. That's also partly because, as you mentioned before, I have small kids. And one of the things I always used to do when I was travelling is I always try and read books set in the places I'm travelling to. And as a result, I have kind of a lot of warm feelings towards particular books that I read in the locations they were set. And two that sprung to mind recently that I thought oh, I'd like to revisit them were James Plunkett's Strumpet City, which is set in Dublin, and uh, Kate Chopin's The Awakening, which is set in New Orleans, both of which I, I read during trips to those places. And um, 
they had a, a profound effect on me. Plunkett's Strumpet City is a novel that was hugely popular when it came out uh, in the late 60s. And you hear about it now and then, but it, it's not really in the zeitgeist. And I think it's a slightly undervalued classic. It's it's set in the, the Dublin labour lockout of, of 1913. And in contrast to a book like Ulysses, that other you know great epic Dublin novel, uh, it's a very uh, realistic and grounded novel with dozens of characters. It's a novel of characters in many ways with many, many different stories from, from Rashes, the tramp character, you know, right up to the men at the, the top of the factories and, and everything who are running things. And it paints this incredible portrait of Ireland and Dublin on the cusp of the War of Independence and the sort of events that led to this national consciousness that would explode a few years later. It's certainly, I think, a novel that deserves to be uh, mentioned more often as, as one of the great books, certainly one of the great Dublin novels uh, to have been written. That sounds like one worth looking at. And The Awakening, New Orleans, I mean, what's not to like about being taken there? Well, of course, there's a lot of great books set in New Orleans, but The Awakening, uh, you know, it's it's a classic. I'm sure a lot of listeners have, have read it, but um, it begins in a, on an island in the Mexican Gulf and then moves to New Orleans later. It's written in 1899 and I think in really a lot of ways it's uh, an early example of what would later we would think of as Southern literature, um, which kind of wasn't its own necessarily established genre yet in 1899, but would later become one with, with people like William Faulkner. But it's also a, a great a feminist work from the late 19th century in which the, the main character dares to be a woman who has sexual desires and uh, and dares to want independence. And written as it was before A Room of One's Own and, and having a room of one's own and a space of one's own is really one of the themes of the book. And I think it, it in a funny way it's sort of a companion to a work like A Doll's House in the way that feminist thinking and ideology was emerging in literature towards the end of the 19th century and, of course, the predominantly male critics of the time found this book to be horrific and insulting and uh, it, although it wasn't banned, it was um, roundly condemned. But it, it's a great book and I was glad to revisit it. Mm, and you mentioned uh, A Doll's House by Hendrik Ibsen, one of my fantastic favourite plays of all time. Yeah. So, Jesse, it's interesting to hear Mark talking about the challenge of women and desire in a novel written in 1899, when I think that's still a theme in your novel, published in 2020. But I wonder if you could tell us what else you're reading at the moment. I have several books going at once. Towards the beginning of the year, I, I like Mark, I made a list of all the things that I'd read, but then that slowly trickled, like my record keeping slowly kind of dwindled away. But um, at the moment, I'm reading um, a collection of essays um, by a Taiwanese-American essayist called Esme Weijung Wang, and it's called The Collected Schizophrenias. And basically it charts her experience with um, schizophrenia throughout her life. She's only in her 40s, I believe, but it's so intense. It's so poignant. It's so, it's such a beautiful sort of melting pot of academic facts and her own personal experiences. But I, I think I was drawn to this book particularly because I'm always hungry and in search of very explicit memoiristic writing from the perspective of um, an Asian woman living in a Western context about mental illness because I know that in Asian context and in a lot of regions in Asia, mental illness is very, very taboo. There's no language around it. Um, people don't openly discuss it. And so this was very comforting to read 
But I picked it up actually because I'm writing my second novel where um, my main character does suffer from mental illness. So I thought that that was useful research. And so that's Esme Weijin Wang's The Collected Schizophrenias, which sounds really interesting. But let's turn to the books you've both read for us. So, Mark, you read Luke Horton's The Fogging, and Jesse, you've read Daisy Johnson's Sisters, and we'll begin with that one. Daisy Johnson is an English writer of both short fiction and novels. Her debut, Everything Under, was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize in 2018 when she was only 28 years old. And Cassie, I saw her last year at the Sydney Writers' Festival talking about all things uncanny and monstrous. But now we're going to talk about her new novel, which is called Sisters. Mm -hmm, Because they're never monstrous or uncanny, I'm told. (laughs) Not having any myself. Oh, well, I have five, so I'm not sure that I should comment. <laughs> but, the, but the sisters at the heart of this story, they're teenagers and they're very close in age. Their names are July and September. And the story is told to us mostly from the perspective of the younger sister, whose name is July. But as we meet her, they're moving up the coast from Oxford to somewhere cold and damp by the sea in England. It's the two girls and their mother, Sheila, and we know they have to move because something happened at school, something bad happened, but we don't know what it is. But really the first thing you notice about this novel is it's got quite an arresting style. So this is page one. My sister is a black hole. My sister is a tornado. My sister is the end of the line. My sister is the locked door. My sister is a shot in the dark. My sister is waiting for me. My sister is a falling tree. My sister is a bricked up window. My sister is a sinking ship. My sister is the last packet of crisps. So, Jesse, we're thrown into the midst of the lives of these girls without knowing what's brought them on this journey, what's brought them to this house by the sea, But we can see pretty quickly that there's a strange dynamic with the mother and these girls and even the house. I wonder if you could help us visualise the house and what it's like when they get there. Mm, Yeah, she does this so brilliantly. When I opened up the book and started reading, um, it really strikes me that it seemed very cinematic in the way that Johnson sets up uh, the description of the house in this new context. It's very haunting and the way in which she uses language and the ways in which she manages to kind of corporeally describe the house, it, it, it's, like you said, um, so uncanny the way she draws elements of the human body and uses that to describe this, ostensibly it's another character, this house, and kind of foreshadowing the sense of what the house is going to and how the house is going to impact the lives of these three women as they enter this new phase in their life. And we're wondering, like, what are they trying to escape? That question is always hanging above our heads. And so that house, it had belonged to their long-dead father and his sister Ursa, who's lent them the house, but it's dirty and it's musty, it's cold. They can't find the key. And it seems that the mother sort of can't get her act together. So the girls have to break in 
But then what's happening? I mean, these girls are cold and hungry, but the mother seems sort of absent. I mean, what do we know about her as a character? Mm, she is quite obscured, isn't she? There's like this sort of sense of a veil placed over her character throughout the the whole book. Hey, yeah, um, I felt that definitely. I mean, we we slowly, the way in which Johnson trickles these little crumbs of Sheila, the mother's name is Sheila, um, to, across the, the book. I mean, it's a very short book, but it's still there. The, the places in which she comes into the narrative and slowly revealed, it's almost like ghost-like the way that she penetrates the narrative and then comes out through it again. And we, we slowly understand that she is rather unhappy. She's depressed. There are incidences that happened, which Johnson describes as like um, small violences, which had occurred with her marriage um, with um, the father of July and September, which sort of is still haunting her, but in a way that we are never able to fully comprehend because July, like you said, we're entering this narrative through her perspective predominantly. She doesn't know really about, she doesn't understand what her mother is going through. And so that sense of distance, that distance um, with your with the mother um, is so beautifully but also very hauntingly extricated, I think, through that narrative. Which means that we get little bits and pieces of the practical details of their lives. So eventually we realise that the mother is a writer and illustrator of children's books and she uses these girls of hers as figures in the story. So we sort of start to visualise them. But at the heart of it is the relationship between these two girls. They're, they're very close. They're not twins and they're not necessarily alike. And as we've said, July is telling us the story. She's a bit quiet, afraid even. But what's September like? Oh, September is the ringleader. Um, she's basically the, the more dominant character between, you know, the relationship between her and her sister. She is extremely manipulative, she's abusive, she's controlling. And July is the sort of weaker, less dominating, more accommodating little sister. We see that she's willing to do anything. Um, in the course of the book, at one stage, she forces um, her little sister, July, to eat a whole jar of mayonnaise. And she plays this sort of it seems innocuous but and harm, harmless, but this game that she creates called September Says, where she basically is bullying July into doing things that are, you know, very psychologically abusive. And we see the damage and the slow erosion of July's own sense of self and agency. Until eventually July says, September wears me like a coat. But the other thing that defines September is she has this howling anger and this fury builds and builds and things happen that we can't talk about. But then by this point in the book, by about two thirds of the way through, something started to happen to me as a reader, which is as we were in this house by the sea and as we were going back to try to work out what had happened and where we were and how we got there, I really started to doubt what I knew and who was in the story. And I'm wondering, Jesse, if that happened to you as well. Mm, absolutely. Because the there were a couple of moments, um, like you said, around the two-thirds area of the book where um, 
uh, it she does Johnson does something with the language a couple of lines where you start to think maybe maybe September is made up and it's that haunting kind of ghost like element that I was speaking about before that makes you doubt everything that you had read up until that point and it's so captivating and arresting in a way that makes you want to channel through to the rest of the novel to the very end but it's very very clever and so innovative in the way that Johnson does that um it, it's very t- um, like she structures it very well as well the timing is so perfect at that point in the story where we think that where we start to doubt whether our narrative is narrator is reliable yes that's very subtly done because we're not quite sure what it is we're thinking or why it is that we're doubting what we're reading. And it's partly because so much of it is from the perspective of this girl, July, and she starts to meet other teenagers. She starts to work out how to exist in this house that's full of strange sounds, which I guess gets back to the whole way that this writer is using architecture. Mm, and she does it so beautifully. I know that I've listened to some of um, Daisy Johnson's interviews and she talks about how she's really interested in retelling myths and sort of taking something ancient and destroying it and rebuilding it. And I'm so curious and interested in the ways in which she kind of deconstructs this idea of the traditional notions of the female body within the house. And I think perhaps what she's trying to do is really twist the narrative of the sort of domesticity and the historically traditional trajectories of a woman's life in the house. And I think that's what makes this story and how she really involves the house and humanises it so compelling. Which made me think too of a, a section where we do hear a bit more from the mother or about the mother. And Sheila says, She had always known that houses are bodies and that her body is a house in more ways than most. She had housed those beautiful daughters, hadn't she? And she had housed depression all through her life like a smaller, weightier child, and she housed excitement and love and despair. Mm, There's so much mm. in there to sort of make you think about what she's doing. Absolutely. And then there's also this beautiful line where she says about motherhood, and it's such a tremendous book and exploration about motherhood. She says, um, after she'd given birth, she felt emptied out like a beloved house closed up for the winter. So I think you can hear that we've, we've both, this book has made an impact on both of us. So what did it do to you as a reader? It made me really question and interrogate my relationship with my sisters and really ask myself whether there were elements of control or unconscious abusive behavior, if I had ever experienced or enacted that. I have two sisters and we're very, very close, but we're close in very different ways. And the relationship that July and September have is very foreign to the experiences I've had with my sisters and the sisterhood that I experienced. But it really made me think about the dynamics that I had had with my sisters growing up. And um, I'm still thinking about it a week after reading it. Daisy Johnson's Sisters is published by Jonathan Cape.
music there from the Australian band Love of Diagrams. Why? Well, one of their members is Luke Horton, and it's his novel that we're about to hear about on the bookshelf, where I should add, I'm Cassie McCullough here with Kate Evans, as always, and today our guests are Jesse Two and Mark Sutton. So, Mark and Kate, you've both read this new one from Luke Horton, The Fogging, it's called. Tell us about it. It's the story of Tom and Clara, who are 30-something Melburnians, a couple who've been together on and off for about a decade. We meet them when they've headed off to Bali for a holiday. But, Mark, what are they doing with their lives? Who are these people? Well, yes, they're in that kind of uh, in-between stage in their life. They're both early career academics at varying stages and affected in various ways by the casualisation of the academic workforce which means that a holiday like the holiday they're going on to Bali is a rare indulgence for them and one they they can't readily afford. But it's the first holiday they've been on a long time. And as we learn, the last holiday they went on together was kind of a, a, a testing ground, a litmus test in a way for their relationship and concluded with them breaking up for a short time before almost wordlessly drifting back together after a few months. And one of the interesting things about uh, Tom and Clara's relationship and one of the ways it's it's very subtly drawn is there are a couple who are getting on in their lives, as you say, they're, they're in their sort of mid-30s. Well, on. They, when I say they're getting on, they are at a stage in their life where they want to be or should be locking down what their careers are going to be, making decisions about whether or not they want to have a family, making decisions about whether or not they, you know, want to get married or buy a house or do whatever things people do. Uh Um, But they're not making any of these decisions. And they are together in a way because they're used to it. It's it's not a relationship that we sense there. There's a huge amount of immediate passion in, (laughs) certainly at this point in their lives. Mm, Interesting premise. But also they're they're not even particularly passionate about their careers, which Mm. you expect that they might be a bit more driven given that they're both working in academia. So they're a a bit lacklustre, but our perspective is from Tom and that's interesting as well because I find I get drawn into the perspective of a narrator But then you start to see that he has a slightly odd take on things. So even when, for example, he's describing Clara, he says, people found Clara attractive. He knew this. She was rarely the most beautiful woman in the room in the classical sense. Her face was round, fleshy, those big cheeks, and her nose was a little bulbous. She could look vaguely piggish. But then he goes on to say, but her attractiveness crept up on you, surprised you. And so there's a mixture of sort of tenderness and ambivalence almost. And being damned with faint praise. Oh, (laughs) and and that's him being nice. One of the great strengths of the book is Tom is a, a very flawed person, both in the way he's dealing with others and as that passage shows, even in his own thought, processes. And although the book is told from his perspective, I think the book charts a very fine line and successfully charts this line of making us understand the way that Tom is coming across to other people, despite the fact that we're not getting their perspectives and understanding the way in which Tom's perspective on events may be a strange and obscure way of looking at the world. And I think 
one of Tom's great weaknesses, and this ends up becoming a huge element in the plot, is he is non-confrontational to a fault. And he's this non-confrontational nature of his throughout points in his life, and we do get flashbacks to other moments in their relationship, has caused a lot of problems and has sort of led Tom to this ennui fugue state he's in. Um, And the setting of the book, which is mostly set in a resort in Bali, is a great setting for that kind of ennui to play out because when you go to uh, a resort like that, although for a lot of people it's, you know, a happy experience, there's also that strange dreamlike state where you lose track of days, they flow into one, you fall asleep in the banana lounge by the pool after having, you know, a couple of uh, mojitos and you wake up and you don't know what's going on and then you get back in the water and each day is just like the one before. And that strange time is something that the book has going for it. We're constantly being told Tom woke up the next morning and did this and we're thinking, hold on, but last time we saw him it was also morning or they just had lunch and it's slightly not confusing but you feel a little bit like time is slipping as you read it, which is quite interesting as it goes on and Tom and Clara's relationship, we begin to see the the frayed edges coming apart in this moment where they suddenly do have time to think about themselves, their relationship and what's going on outside of the regular stresses of life in Melbourne. And of course, the other thing about being in a place like this is that they have to deal with other people, which Tom would really rather not do. He'd be happy not making any effort to make any conversation, which also means there's quite an interesting section later on when he reflects on friendship. But they meet another couple, Madeline and Jeremy, who are there with their little boy, Ollie. Tell us about them. What type of people are they to throw into the mix? For people who are, I suppose you might say, introverts like like Clara and Tom, or at least not type A personalities, uh, Madeline and Jeremy are, are, are more fun, but also in some ways more, um, well, at least in the way Tom portrays them, they're more simple. They have a young kid. Jeremy's a kind of loving dad. He and Madeline, who is French, have this kind of jokey rivalry about whose turn it is to look after the kid. But they seem to be able to have these little discussions throughout, little mock fights almost, without any malice or antipathy coming apart, as the you know a good relationship possibly can do. And I think it's one of the ways that it shows up almost the coolness of Tom and Clara's relationship is that Madeline and Jeremy are seemingly able to get to the heart of matters very quickly without getting annoyed at each other. And that also happens in their conversations with others. Madeline's telling Tom, you could just apply for a job in France. Here's how to get the visa. Here's how to do all this. She's a person who has solutions and can tell people what they should do and discuss things openly, as is Jeremy to to a degree. But Tom and Clara are very bad at talking about things within their relationship. And when issues come up, they can fester for days and it's almost like a a standoff of who can go the longest without addressing the elephant in the room of our relationship, (laughs) Um, which is a very uh, strange way for our relationship to happen, but also in the way that... um, Luke Horton writes it, uh, it's a very, it it feels like a very true depiction of a type of relationship and and one that when you're reading it is is subtly stressful in this kind of slow burn because you realise that there's this 
uh, something something dark and festering at the, at the heart of their relationship in their inability to talk about things, confront each other, move on. And yet, as a reader, you're trapped within the very you're trapped within Tom's consciousness and he, perhaps even more so than Clara, is very unwilling to grapple with or deal with the issues facing both his career, his relationship, uh, his situation in life. And it's so stressful because Tom suffers quite seriously from anxiety. He has these terrible panic attacks. He freaks out, out a bit on the plane on the way there. And so he's dripping with sweat, he's shaking he never talks to Clara about it and her way of dealing with stress is to be completely silent, as you say, sometimes mm-hmm. for days at end. So that's the other elephant in the room is both anxiety and silence. You can almost not imagine uh, two worse ways of, of dealing with these situations coming up against each other in a relationship in, in a way uh, as something that would cause tension. So what is the fogging of the title? Is that the sense where you, you mentioned that the time seems to have become a little bit amorphous or something well, else? Well, it, it may well work that way. But uh, in terms of what we were just saying about Tom being an anxious person prone to panic attacks, Clara has what is actually quite a traumatic experience about uh, midway through their holiday in Bali where the resort does what's called the fogging, where they spray pesticides throughout the resort in order to make it so the bugs and mosquitoes don't bother the mm-hmm. guests who are paying top dollar for the for the accommodation. Clara has fallen asleep in the bed. It didn't get the message that she shouldn't be in her room and so suddenly wakes up with a dark cloud of pesticides. She's unable to see She's concerned about her ability to breathe. She's concerned about what it might do to her skin. She can't see. She has had pre-existing medical conditions that she believes may be exacerbated by certain chemicals. And it's an extremely traumatic experience for her to get caught in this fogging. And then a moment that the novel sort of hinges on um, is that when she tries to talk to Tom about it, his response is, oh, that's terrible. Anyway, and her sort of trauma does not match his reaction at all. He doesn't get Um, it. And part of it comes from his non-confrontational nature where it would almost be worse for him to to put in a complaint about it or, or yell at the people who run the resort or allow it to ruin what he is hoping will be a relaxing holiday. And it's almost as though if we address this problem then it will become more than he thinks it is. And it's from there that Clara, as as Kate said, retreats into her mode of dealing with these tensions, which is to fall silent, which causes Tom to sort of retreat to his other corner in his stubborn refusal to address what may or may not be plaguing Clara. And suddenly we find we've got our main characters in a resort in Bali essentially refusing to communicate with each other whilst on holiday. And Madeleine, the French woman who they've become friends with, she was also terribly anxious about this because she was there with a child who has some respiratory problems. So everybody else is taking this quite seriously. And Tom is being a mixture of sort of offhand. And what we come to see with the help of various flashbacks is this sort of bitter negativity which is, I think, what Clara calls it at some point, that he's Mm. always seeing the worst in people and he's always being a bit arch and a bit sort of hopeless. 
Um, and this is one of the frustrating parts of this quite well-drawn character is this mix of judgmental his judgmental side and his inability to deal with the problems in his life. So oddly, Mark, we have these two characters who are being quite dysfunctional, really not dealing with their relationship, but there was something compelling about this. So I stayed interested, even though this might sound like it, it's just a terribly grim story. What about you? No, I, I, I agree. In fact, what we haven't addressed is that the characters are, are very well drawn and at times there is humour throughout the book. I also think as someone who is the same age as these characters in the book and we're starting to see a lot more books come out about, I suppose, millennials as they get into their 30s and as they are dealing with life. I think that's partly why uh, people like Sally Rooney's books so much is because it's presenting this type of experience that people my age immediately recognise as being true to their own. And I think the, the people in this book are very much felt like true individuals who I might know, especially their friends in the academic scene, because I, I had in a previous life I worked in academic and in the art scene, the parties they go to. And it's a very, very well observed uh, depiction of this kind of Melbourne set of I suppose you might call it, you know, intelligentsia in the sense that the people they know tend to be academics or, or writers. And I think one of the sad things about the book, and there's a particularly good scene towards the end, which I won't give away, as a reader, aloof from the problems, you are able to see why Clara and Tom could work, or certainly why Clara is a very good match for Tom. Unfortunately, Tom is not able to grasp what he needs to be the person for Clara. And that tension throughout that becomes increasingly apparent means that actually the book, which I might add is a very trim 200 pages, means that that tension makes it quite quite a quick read and quite difficult to put down because you can, you kind of want to see how Tom's mind and whether or not he's going to come round to to use the phrase again, the, the various elephants in the room that are causing these issues in his relationship. So it's almost a, a coming-of-age novel for a slightly older age group, but whether whether he reach, <laughs> reaches, yeah, whether he comes of age or not, I guess that's what you are left to decide. Mm-hmm. Hey, Mark, is it my, uh, is my memory serving me correctly? Did you actually get stuck in Bali with you and your lovely partner not so long ago when that eruption of the volcano happens? happens. Your memory serves you well. Yes, we, we were in Bali on a holiday much <laughs> like the holiday these two are on at an age much like the age that these two are and similarly having never really been on a holiday like that before, you know, a, a kind of lie by the pool and we were supposed to be in Bali for six days and the volcano ash canned flights and we were stuck there for, in the end, what amounted to about 15 days. Um, so this this oneric time fugue state that they are in is something that I was uh, deeply familiar with. Oh, Kate, did you know that when you gave Mark this book to read? I had no idea. I think I knew <laughs> I knew about the PhD that Mark had done and I thought that was something that we could both wince at times about the shared PhD experience, but I had no idea about the Bali connection. There you go. 
Well, yes, I should point out that another one of the really uh, true-to-life depictions in the book that certainly cut close to my bone was the description of Tom as a casual tutor at university, especially his first (laughs) experience of it, where he has this combination, which I confess I related to perhaps too much, of on one degree frustration at the students at not being as committed to the course as you want them to be, whilst also having this kind of imposter syndrome where you think that these intelligent young people are going to see through the fact that you're not quite (laughs) the expert that you are presenting yourself to be and these twin tensions that are quite stressful as you stand in front of a class for two hours and be the face of a university and attempt to educate them. And I certainly found teaching equal parts uh, enjoyable and incredibly stressful. And uh, (laughs) there's a long description of what Tom went through in his first semester, which I thought was almost too true to my experience. Yes, it was indeed agonising. Luke Horton's The Fogging is published by Scribe. Well, thank you both. What fantastic reviews you've given us and what sound both like great novels. Thanks thanks to you both. Thanks so much. Thanks, Cassie. Thanks, Kate. Uh, and thanks, Jesse. It was really fun. Likewise. Yeah. Great to have you all together. Jesse, too, journalist and writer. Her debut novel is A Lonely Girl is a Dangerous Thing. It's published by Alan and Unwin just out recently. And Mark Sutton, TV writer, academic, Dylanologist and reader. And, of course, a regular here on The Bookshelf. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed hearing from both of you. And next week, it's book club time again. And Miles Franklin award-winning novel The Yield by Tara June Winch and the benefactor of the prize herself, Miles Franklin. We're reading her 1901 novel, My Brilliant Career. I'll be reading it for the first time. Maybe you will be too. So don't forget, join in that conversation. You can send us an email or you can join the discussion on the ABC Book Club Facebook group. Join us again next week. See ya. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.